This is our third week in uh, Ruth, and I think it is fitting that before tonight is out, we at least meet Boaz. Um, we, Boaz is, the, is one of the main characters, and we haven't done much with him. We will get to him before we are finished. So until we get to Boaz, you know the lesson isn't over tonight. And when we get to Boaz, we are about there. So that's a little markers along the way. In a lesson, I want to title a question. What's in a name? This is an important question for Bible students because the Bible has a rich history of names meaning something and of people naming things so that they will mean something, whether it's landmarks, rivers, animals. And then of course, names being changed as a product of people receiving a new destiny, a new call, or um, some change of heart. For instance, Abram, of course, becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Um, Jacob becomes Israel. Esau becomes Edom over time. Um, Saul, the most famous one, of course, from the New Testament is Saul, takes the name Paul. We go from Jewish heritage Saul to Greek heritage Paul, and he takes that name after his conversion on the road to Damascus, which is a really telling thing as a Jewish man who knows Torah, changes his name it's almost as if he's changing his entire identity. And really, that's what names are all about in the Word. They are identities. You are named something that identifies what you are. Um, in the case of our story in Ruth, sometimes the names are little signposts that tell you what to expect the story to do with like Malon and Chilion, characters that are probably added to the story to help round the story out and then their names mean something. Um, I asked the question as our title, What's in a Name? Because tonight we're going to dig in a little bit to this famous Naomi moment in which she tries to sell herself off as someone else. We're not to take her serious for the fact that she doesn't double down on it. She doesn't say later in the book, hey, quit calling me Naomi. But we are to take her serious in that she picks the name because it's a reflection of how she feels which leads us to the idea that our name has to do with our identity. And this is why in the biblical stories, the father's inheritance was passed down to sons. And that's why in many respects, we have kept the tradition alive of carrying our father's name with us into life. And then when a woman marries, she makes the choice of whether she'll carry her father's name or her husband's name. But in either case, she's carrying a man's name, uh, either her father or her husband, into that next generation. And that is, in some ways, a real holdback, or that's the wrong word, a throwback to the, to the era where that inheritance was passing down, family to family. So the name was vital because the name represented what you got. It represented what you have, who you are. It was bigger than you. Your, your family name was the carrying of, of something important. To change your name, and I know we're talking, I was talking surname right there, but to change your name in an era where there were no surnames, it was such and so, son of such and so, um, to change your name meant that you felt like you had changed. Something about you was different. You didn't want to be called what you were called before. And you needed to be called this new name. If, whether it's Jacob, which is cheat, heel catcher, um, someone who trips you from behind, to Israel, he who contends with God, um, it's because you've had an encounter with God and you want to be identified by the encounter. If you read the Jacob story, he's Jacob, 
and then they say you're Israel, and then they start calling him Jacob, and then Israel, and Jacob, and Israel, and then Israel, and then Israel, and then Jacob, and then Israel, and it, it starts to sway. Starts out all Jacob, a little Israel, and then it's mostly Jacob, a little Israel, and then the, the scales tip as you read the book of Genesis. You can watch it happen to where he starts to become Israel more and more and more, and then as they become a people, he's always Israel. And then when it's the person, it's Jacob, which tells you that the name represents something bigger than you. Israel represented a body of people, represented a family of people. It wasn't just a guy anymore. It was a whole group of people. So to take a name is to take something big. It's, there's a reflection of this in the prodigal son. When the father gives the younger brother, when he comes home and he gives him his shoes and he gives him a ring and he gives him a robe and that ring is the family signet. It tells everyone what house he belongs to. In a way, he's already given the boy his inheritance. Remember, at the beginning of the parable. But in a way, he's giving him more inheritance. When he comes back from the pig pen, he gets to put the ring on because he's taking on dad's identity again in spite of himself. It's a beautiful story of grace and forgiveness and love and, and mercy. And if you deserve it, it's not mercy. So it's a story of mercy. And the kid doesn't deserve a ring or shoes, or robe, but he gets it because that's your merciful father. What's in a name? Everything. Um, all of your destiny, all that you are and all that you hope to be. So in the biblical story, to toy with that, to change it, is to say, I am something else. And this is an interesting one because we're in a society now where we want, you know, there's, a, there's kind of a call for people to identify themselves the way they want to and then the expectation that everyone around them will identify them that way. This is what I want to be called. This is what you should call me. And uh, I personally think if you want to be called something, fine. Um, be called, call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. But don't expect everyone around you to call you that. And the reason for that is because everyone else doesn't always see you the way you see you, whether that's good or bad. Because sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. Tonight's story, it's a good thing that no one around Naomi sees her the way she wants to be seen. They see her the way they know her, the way they know of her, and they refer to her in the way that they know of her instead of the way that she wants to be seen. Um, and so that's, it's, that's kind of a natural part of life. Um, as has happened every week in this study, there's more here than meets the eye. Consider Ruth a, a piece of literature that is in response, perhaps, to the edict of Ezra and Nehemiah in the 5th century BC, that edict that Moabites are not allowed to marry Israelites as the Israelites come back into the land from Babylonian captivity, all the way down to Ezra telling over 100 families to split up, wives and children go back to Moab. The fracture that has happened in this, I think, is the nestling spot for Ruth and this great story. So I pick it up in the 16th and 17th verse, where Ruth has decided she is going back. I just couldn't do these lessons without at least five minutes on Ruth's beautiful poem, because what she says to Naomi is as close to conversion as it gets for Ruth. We're going to talk about conversion in a second in the old world, in the ancient Near East. But let's read those two verses in the 16th and 17th verses of Ruth 1. Ruth said, entreat me. Ruth's talking to Naomi. Entreat me not to leave you. Don't make me. Or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, 
and your God, my God. And that's a, that's a fascinating phrase. She has her own people. She has her own land. She has her own bloodline. She has her own heritage. She has her own story. She's willing to lay that down in order to follow Naomi with no promise of anything in return. Naomi doesn't have a husband for her. Naomi doesn't have money to give her. Naomi doesn't have a new name to give her, doesn't have identity. Why does Ruth do this? And so think about these things when you read this story. Don't overthink it, but think of it in that context of what's this letter trying to say? Why would anybody do this? Um, there has to be a higher calling, in other words. Ruth isn't motivated by money. She's not motivated by power. She's not motivated by property. She doesn't get anything if she comes back because it's easy for us to look at the stranger and reject them because we're afraid they're going to take something that's ours or that they're going to cheat us or that they aren't going to pay their fair share or that they are going to take advantage of the system. And Ruth's prayer is the author's way of saying she doesn't come back to take anything. She comes back to give, to give of herself. I'm not going anywhere. Wherever you go, I go. Where you live, I live. Your people become my people. Your God becomes my God. I don't try to bring what I am to you. I will be what you are in my new life. 17, where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. The Lord, and this is Ruth's first usage of Jehovah. All caps indicates Jehovah, the covenant God of Israel. Do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts you and me. This is to the death. So I'm coming back to die. It's, it's not just good poetry. It's the throwing down of the gauntlet. Ruth has nothing to go back to. She's guaranteeing uh, that whatever she walks into. This is bold. I'm going to cross that river, so to speak. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go into Judah. I don't know what I'm going to get. You've got to think that at some point Naomi's had a conversation with Ruth saying, look, and I, I don't know any other way to say this, but... Your kind aren't welcome where I come from, okay? Um, you're not even going to be allowed to go to service with me, to worship. So I, you, want, you might want to reconsider this. And yet Ruth steps into this in the closest thing we have to a conversion. Let me talk about that. The ancient Near East had no formal conversion process. And by conversion, I mean I'm, a lo I'm lost and now I'm saved. I'm a Moabite, now I'm a Jew. You know, religion to religion, people to people. There was no process. It's not like you pray the sinner's prayer, get baptized. You know, the things that kind of we do. Like if someone said, how do I become a Christian? Most Christians would say, well, you say this, and you say this, and you pray this, and you get baptized. And I'm not saying we're wrong saying that, but we have a process, at least somewhat of a process. I'm, I'm almost afraid we have too much of a process. In, in a lot of formal Christian circles. I, I think what we ought to say to people when they go is, I want to be a Christian. How's that happen? Say, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Go, go pay attention to Jesus and follow him. But they didn't have any real process. Just Here was the process. Just do what everyone else does. When you get there, live the way they live. You want to be a part of their group? Get in their group. Wear what they wear. Eat what they eat. This is important to Judaism. Don't eat what they don't eat. Pray the way they pray, act the way they act. That's how you convert into that group. This is group conformity. So worship their gods. And yes, I went little g. That wasn't an accident because we're not just talking about Israel. We're talking about the gods of the pantheon, the Canaanites. You make their gods your gods. Now, by the time of the Greeks and the Romans, that's easy because they're like, there's a million gods. 
Um, whatever one your family worships, hey, I'm in. Let's add that one. I've already got 46 gods. What's three more? And that's the way they looked at it. Who, who cares? You know, add, add a few more to the pile. And maybe that's Ruth. She doesn't say, my old gods are gone. I pick up your God only. But she does say, your God will be my God. There's an indication there. If it's one, it's one. I'll take your God and make him my God. That leads me to the idea of the prophetic voice because we have prophets all throughout the Old Testament. What are prophets doing? Well, they're doing a lot of things, but one thing they're doing for sure is they're pushing the group toward God. They're pushing the nation towards God. They're reminding the nation of their covenant. They're pushing them back towards that covenant, but they're pulling them as as well, pushing them into covenant and into their own space, but away from the kind of conformity that destroys Much of the restrictions in Torah, the the hedges that are built in Torah, are to hem in the people of God into one cohesive group so they have a common language, a common thought process, a common worship, common in all respects. There's There's probably a reason why community and common have a lot in common. Um, Because there is that root. But they're not only pushed... It's not just walls to keep in. It's also to to keep out the things that don't define the people. And so it's it's to do away with the kind of conformity that destroys the cohesiveness of the family. Consider possibly that Ruth, and I put I put Ruth in quotes because I'm talking about the book. Probably should just put the book of Ruth, but consider Ruth, not the character, but the book, as perhaps a rebuttal. And I, I say this carefully, so let me walk through this. Might be a rebuttal to the prophetic voice. The prophetic voice is pushing people back into community. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah, get rid of these Moabites. Ruth sounds like a rebuttal to that prophetic voice, kind of like saying, hey, are you sure you got this one right? You know, prophets, are you sure about this Moabite thing? Because it's important that even the prophetic voice be accountable. That it's not just whatever the prophetic voice comes up with. That's what we live by. Because that's gotten, that's gotten the Christian church in a lot of hot water. Because the man of God said it. And that's what we're going to do. And oh yeah, there's, I got you know, half a Bible that doesn't agree with that. But hey, they, they talk to God every day. So let's go for it. And, and I'm not calling for wholesale rebellion against spoken word, but there can be pushback and that pushback not be ungodly. And the pushback has to be, are you sure about this? Be sure. Here's a story. Do with it what you will. And those stories uh, sometimes push back against religion. Um, Jesus was pushing back with his stories in his day against the religious voices of his day. Um, some of his stories are super subversive. I mean, his, his laborers in the vineyard stories didn't go down good in his day. It goes down even worse today. It's one of them that we soften as much as any story Jesus ever told about the guy that hires someone to work in his vineyard in the morning and they agree to a price and then he keeps hiring people all day. And then at the end of the day, he pays the people that worked one hour the same as he pays the people that worked all day. Well, that wouldn't go down well with us. People would get really hot if they were told you're going to make this much money if you work today. And then this guy over here worked an hour and you watch him get your pay. I don't know why you'd care. You agreed to work this much, but that we do. It's like, that's not fair. 
because we're always fair. And there's Jesus telling that story, which is a subversive story to what we think is fair. And so it's Jesus going, are you sure? Are you sure what's fair is fair? And does fair matter in the kingdom? Isn't the kingdom about giving people what they need, not what they deserve? Right? Because the guy at the end of the day really needed a whole day's pay. He was there waiting to work. He just didn't get hired. Here he comes getting hired at the end. I'm going to pay him as if he worked all day. That's God giving us what we need, not what we earned. I, for one, am glad God gives what we need, not what we earn. Because if I got what I earned, well, you know, and you too, if you're honest, all of us. I don't want what I earn. I want what he, his grace will give. And that's part of this story as well. So our, I, I like to think that this is asking, are you sure about this one? Let's go into the heart of tonight's lesson from the 20th and 21st verse of Ruth 1. They get back into Judah and Naomi is talking to the crowd and she says to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Remember, this is Naomi and Ruth. Orpah's already went back home. Call me Mara for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You wouldn't even need to know Hebrew and she told you what the name means. If you watch in the text, here's a little... Little insight in the Bible study. If you pay attention to the verses in front and the verses behind, oftentimes you can figure out what the story's trying to say. Worst way to read the Bible is a literalist because then all you have is literally the words on the page. They don't mean anything other than what they literally mean. And so if you get past literalism and then let them be allegorical, let them be metaphoric, let them say something more, most of the time they'll tell you what they're trying to say. We're going to get into a story like that in just a second. So Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The Almighty has been bitter with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Her belly wasn't full when she went out. So her fullness is a different kind of fullness. Remember, they left because it was a famine. What she means by full is I left with a full house. I had a husband, two sons, but I come back empty. I guess Ruth is standing there thinking, well, what am I, chopped liver? (laughs) Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has afflicted me. I I don't want to stay here long, but I want to remind you of something we said last week. That I do think Naomi tries in this moment to make God the antagonist of the story. God's God's the person in this story so far that she tries to make out to be the bad guy. The Lord did this to me. Now the story is going to prove otherwise. God's not against her at all. Um, God isn't holding your worst moment against you. Okay? You, you have your worst moment where you accuse God, where you're, you're faithless and you're mad. And you say stuff like this. God stripped me of every good thing I ever had. Don't call me Naomi because God's been bad to me. God dealt me a rotten hand and it's his fault. It's his fault my husband's dead. It's his fault my boys are dead. It's his fault I'm back here with nothing. I got nothing but this Moabite girl. And the the story's about to crank up calling her Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabite, so that the reader doesn't forget that this is all Naomi brought back with her. If God holds this against you, there's no blessing on the next side for Naomi. But what's about to happen is that Naomi is about to encounter the God that she thinks is against her. God is never against you. God is always for you. So whatever this world does to convince you that God has turned his hand against you, even when you speak out against it or, or you lack faith, God is so good that he's good in spite of your worst moment. 
And I want to encourage you in that. I want you to know that your worst moment does not negate the goodness of God. You're not that strong. <laughs> You're not that powerful that God goes, oh man, I was going to be good to him, but boy, that stung. I'm going to, that's, that's it. I don't, I don't believe in her anymore. I don't believe in him anymore. I like to say he believes in you far more than you ever believed in him. So at your worst day of believing in God, he still believes in you. And, and so the blessing that's come to Naomi is not because she has positive confession. It's not because she knows how to quote the right scriptures. It's because God's good. Because God is good to her, not because she has done the right thing. Let's look at her name for a second. Naomi very simply means pleasant. And I told you if you paid attention to the sentence, you could figure out what Myra meant. She said the Lord's dealt bitterly with me. Her name means pleasant, but she says, don't call me that anymore. Call me Myra. Because Mara in the Hebrew is the word for bitter. Naomi identifies herself as Mara. No one else does. In the four chapters of the book of Ruth, we never hear the name again. No one takes her serious. When she goes, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. They don't all go, oh, yeah, forget that Naomi stuff. Change the name on the welcome home cake to Mara. And get rid of that Naomi that we put on top of it because she wants to be called Mara. No, they ignore what she says because what she's saying doesn't have anything to do um, with permanent identity. It has to do with a temporary place that she's in. And so this, the book just ignores it and keeps calling her pleasant in spite of the fact that she seems bitter. I think it's because this story is as much about Naomi's transformation as it is about Ruth's acceptance. Naomi's place in this story is to show Israel that she can change as well because the story is not only to get Israel to accept the Moabites, it's to change the heart of Israel. The author of the book of Ruth doesn't seem content to make Israelites feel bad about how they're treating Moabites, but rather to take that shame in how you're treating a Moabite and actually change. So if your hero character, maybe the hero of the book of Ruth is not Ruth, and maybe it's not even Boaz. Maybe it's Naomi, that Naomi undergoes a great transformation from someone who is bitter and angry and comes home as much, tries to even change her identity. But before this is all over, she sings this great song of praise at the end of the book of Ruth because the transformation is that she's become the kind of person that can fully embrace whatever life throws at her, that doesn't allow those curveballs to throw her off. So keep that in the back of your mind as you journey through Ruth, that maybe if Ruth is a message to Israel to accept the Moabites or the strangers. Maybe Naomi is a message to Israel to learn who you really are, to learn your true identity. You know, I've spent a long time talking to Christians about their identity. It's one of the things that we probably have done as much as anything we've done. If you're going to release people into liberty, you're going to have to let them know what they really are versus what they think they are. A big part of taking grave clothes off of resurrected people is convincing them they're resurrected. So a lot of times I have to start there. You've got a lot of people that don't know how saved they are. Um, and you've got a lot of Christians who have such a faulty idea of God that they keep trying to get what they already have. They keep trying to get saved, get forgiven, become righteous. And they're working so hard to get what's already theirs. And so a lot of times getting people into proper identity is just getting them to, or getting people into liberty is getting them into identity. So then once they know who they are, they can let go of all these other false identities and let go of all the stuff that doesn't really define them. And that doesn't mean that we got to be like real hard nose on 
uh, don't ever call me a sinner saved by grace. I'm not a sinner. I don't, I don't land as hard on that as I used to because the reality is, is that I am um, very much capable of sin. I am not identified as a sinner only. I am identified as in many ways, I think in many ways in which Jesus was both all man and all God, I'm identified as a sinner who is a saint in the eyes of God. And that keeps me at a level of humility in knowing that I am not bigger than the moment, that I'm not beyond failure, and that I, when I fail, it doesn't, one identity doesn't drown out the other identity. I just, I, I realize there are still parts of me undergoing spiritual surgery. The great physician is at work in the parts of me that need transformed. And it's not entirely easy to see what those parts are. You got to live them out. And as you live them out, they start to show themselves as this is an area where the Holy Spirit wants to go to work. I don't think Naomi sees the area, uh, but she will. All right. How do we handle Naomi's situation with the Mar? It's, it's easy to just overlook this, get to the Boaz story and go, ah, Naomi, silly Naomi. She tries to call herself one thing, but she's not. She's something else. And just move on. And that's, a, that's fine if there wasn't a whole Bible around us, but there is, which means that there's other things that could help interpret this story. So what do we do if we find ourselves as Naomi and we've, we're more bitter than we are pleasant? Because you're going to be there. I mean, you may not be there today, but you're going to be there. There's going to be a moment in your life when your identity in who you feel like you are in Christ is way more bitter than, than pleasant. And uh, you can call yourself Mara and God won't get mad at you and people don't have to call you that, but you feel that way. Where, what, what gives her the, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. What gives the author of the book of Ruth the framework to tell this story? He knows where he's going. He or she, whoever writes Ruth, they know where they're going. So what's the framework? Because there is always a framework around which this stuff exists. Israel has come across the Red Sea. I'm going to take you all the way back to Exodus. Israel has come across the Red Sea. The Egyptian army has been drowned beneath the waves. They get to the other side and on the beach at the far side of the Red Sea, they sing the song of Moses. And this is a big chapter in Exodus where everybody breaks out the, the tambourines and they all shout and dance and everyone's excited. And they're singing this song of victory because they just overcame their enemy. And there's going to be nothing but happy days ahead. Now, it's kind of fun when you read Exodus because you know that they're about to go into the wilderness and all hell's about to break loose. But they don't know that. And they're really pumped because they're pretty sure we came out of slavery. God drowned our enemies. Tomorrow we're going to be drinking the milk and eating the honey. We're on our way into the promised land. And they come across, they sing their song. Everybody's rejoicing. Excitement, 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 party atmosphere. And they take a three-day jaunt on their way. They're on their way to where they're supposed to go. And... Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. Now, I'm going to work this sort of exegetically through this story because 
Um, I think that there's a lot to say, but I want to kind of keep it in context with Ruth. I also am going to show some obvious Christian allusions in here. Christ in the midst of this story. Because that's what we are. We're Christians reading an old story. So we see Jesus where we can see Jesus. And that helps us to interpret. But as much as possible, I want you to leave that on the back burner. Because the readers in Ruth's day aren't looking for Jesus. Okay? They don't have Jesus in their rearview mirror. In their rearview mirror. They don't even have Jesus in, their, in the front windshield. They're not looking for a Savior. They're just coming back trying to get rid of these Moabites. And so when you call yourself Mara. To a Jewish audience, there's a story for that. So you got to go read the story around the original Mara to maybe find out what Naomi's going through. Three days into the wilderness, the reason it's three days is because the human body can't go much longer without water. Three days is about it. You might, if you went into it well hydrated, you might make it four. But no one's got a week in them. No human being has a week with no water. It's, you're going to die. The body can't survive. So at three days, you're entering the breakdown phase. And, and so you have a story in which the entire body of Israel is three days into the wilderness. And so now they're cranky. <laughs> okay? The, the, the pleasantness, the Naomi spirit, out the window. Everyone's getting ticked off. Nothing's worse than a car full of hungry people. All right? They're hungry. They're thirsty. They need to stop, take a break. And so as they wander, they come to Merah. They could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. There's the original Merah, the original bitter. They reach down into the first water they've seen in 72 hours. And the first drink they take, it's, they can't even take it. It's so bad that it's, it's, it's as if there's no water there at all. Therefore, the name of it was called Merah. And just so that, I just think this is interesting, so that the reader really gets it. Mara, Mara, the name of it was called Mara. Three times in one, in, in one verse. Just like, hey, in case you've forgotten, Mara means bitter, Mara means bitter, Mara means bitter. You can't drink it. It's bad stuff, all right? And the people complain, because that's what we do when we're bitter. They complain against Moses saying, what shall we drink? 25. So he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them. Okay. Well, this doesn't make any sense. You've got a body of water that's not drinkable. You've got people who are about to die of dehydration. They try to drink the water. It's so bad that not even a thirsty man on the, border of, on the brink of death can drink it. And now there's an infuriated group of people. And Moses goes, God, you got to be kidding me. You just, kill, you just took care of all of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. You lead me out here three days in the wilderness. We're going to die. And God goes, go cut that tree down, throw it in the water. And if you're Moses, well, you do it because you just watched the Red Sea. I mean, in some cases, one miracle literally leads to the faith of another miracle. I'm not sure what's bigger. I think at the Red Sea, you're like, you know, we're going to die. Um, okay, I'll lift my stick. Let's see what you do. And God parts the waters. But here, what an act of faith. And he takes the tree and he throws it in the water so that everyone can drink. He made it. The waters were made sweet. He made a statute for them. And there he tested them. Let me see 26 real quick. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God, do what's right in his sight. Give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes. 
I'll put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians. And so I'll read the last verse in a second. So basically, Moses takes a tree, casts it into the water, and the bitter waters become sweet. Now how we handle this as Christians is that Jesus dies on a tree. And so if you will take Jesus, who dies on a tree, and cast him into the bitter waters of your life, they will become sweet. In other words, Jesus becomes that which transforms your bitter waters into your sweet waters. Um, okay. You're going to think I'm, you're not going to, this doesn't sound like me, what I'm about to say, but we can do better. We can do better than Jesus? No, we can't do better than Jesus. We can do better than that version of Jesus, of that story. Because that, did, that wouldn't have meant a thing to the audience of Ruth. And it wouldn't have meant a thing to the audience in Exodus if Moses goes, hey, this is a type of Christ, and throws it in the water. All they cared about is the water drinkable. But in their stories, the tree is in the garden. There's good trees and there's bad trees. And we ate from one and it destroyed us. But there's a tree out there we can't get. Someday we're going to get it. That tree is life. The Psalms opens with that tree. Revelation closes with that tree. Genesis opens with that tree. Israel knows there's a tree because a tree is a symbol of life. It grows out of the ground. Its roots go deeper than you can see because no one's life is what, only what you see on the surface. When you look at a person, they brought their whole world into the room, but all you see is what they let you see. But there's a root system that runs into the soil deep that goes back generations, that reaches back to their grandparents and to their school and to their life experiences and, and to their hopes and their joys and their pains and their mistakes. And the, all of that, all you see is leaves and bark and fruit. That's a tree. But, and the, but the tree goes. It goes left and right and up and sideways. It goes through seasons. Its leaves change. That's life. Sometimes the wind blows it. Sometimes certain branches fall off. For Israel, the tree is the picture of life. It's what life is all about, is the tree. To take the tree and throw it into the water is to put life into the midst of my bitterness. Put life into what has no life. Put the life of God, enjoying life, loving life, finding life, pursuing life. Some would call this meaning and purpose. And then throw that into your bitterness. And then in the middle of your bitterness, things become sweet because life has hit bitterness. And then out of that, I'm the Lord who heals you. By the way, that's the old covenant promise at the end of verse 26. I am the God, King James says it this way, I am the God that healeth thee. The old covenant promises, I'm going to heal you. If you've ever wondered why Jesus comes along healing people like crazy. Because it's the seal, it's the mark that he's God's son. Because God told his people, I'm the God that heals you. So Jesus walks into town healing, 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 healing. Because that's the evidence Israel needed that he was God. If you'll notice, when Jesus goes into other towns, 
that are not Jewish, there's not an overwhelming desire for him to heal. In John 4, when he meets the woman at the well, he's in Samaria. And when he goes to her house, he just teaches and everyone in the city believes. And then he goes back into Judea to the nobleman's house. And the nobleman says, come to my house to heal my son. And when he gets there, the text in John 4 says he couldn't do much. And so Jesus says to them, you people won't believe unless you see a miracle. Who's you people? His people. Because they were built on, he's the Lord that heals us. So if he's not healing, well, you know, you got to heal if you're going to you're going to be able to speak to us. There's a little bit of that happening, but actually there's a lot of that happening in the gospel account. Look at 27. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. You know what the word Elam means in the Hebrew? Tree. Really simple. Take a tree, throw it in the water, and the waters become sweet. Then they come to a tree and that tree has 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. Two numbers that are extremely important in Jewish lore. 12 is the number of their government. It's the number of their tribes and the number in Christianity of the apostles, of the 12 stones that surround the new Jerusalem. It's the number the, the disciples wouldn't even move forward after Pente at Pentecost until they got that number back up to 12. That number was so important to them that they have 12 apostles because that's how they govern themselves. And 70 is 7 by 10. 70 is the number that, of course the number of elders that go up with Moses to the top of Sinai when he receives the Ten Commandments. It's the number of translators that bring the Hebrew into the Greek and the Septuagint. Um, it's a derivative of seven, the perfect number of God. So when you see these palm trees and these wells, you're just seeing an allegory for they've reached the place of perfection. And you know what it took to get them to the place of perfection? Put life into the middle of your bitterness. What do you get then? You get to live at the tree of life. Would they have seen all of this in the story? Yeah, they would have seen this in the story because they have numerology and they have the tree. That's the basis of their entire storytelling. So when it gets snuck into Ruth, it's being snuck into Ruth because they're Jewish readers. And I got a woman who was pleasant and then she becomes Mara. How do you solve the Mara problem? How do you solve the bitterness problem? Life. It's the author's way of saying, life is what's going to save Naomi. Life is what's going to transform Naomi. Jesus said this in John 1, 4, or John says this of Jesus, sorry. In him, in Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men, verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it. Or better in the Greek, the darkness does not overcome it. It doesn't swallow up the light because the darkness is weak compared to the light because the darkness is not a thing. It's just the absence of where the light is. And once the light hits the darkness, the darkness has to retreat because it's not an actual thing. It's just a void. It's just an emptiness. When Jesus comes as light and shines into the darkness of our soul, he's just merely shining into the dark areas, the empty areas, the void areas of who we are. He's shining into the Mara. He's shining into the bitterness, the part we can't live off of, the part we can't drink because it, we don't identify with it. His life shines into our death. His tree 
touches our bitterness. And that tree becomes the place where we find the shade of the palm tree. It becomes the place where wells are dug and we, we have life. And out of this, we get transferred. So what's in a name? Your whole identity. But you're more than how you feel. And you're more than how you, what you think of yourself right now. You're way more than that. But don't worry. If you can't drag yourself out of that, it's okay. You can't drag yourself out of Mara. The waters are just bitter. So the life that he gives is the answer in the midst of that bitterness. And it's not just come up here and say a prayer and accept Jesus' life into your bitterness. That's a good place to start, or it's a good thing to do, for sure. But, man, I think life is a gift. The one you have is a gift. And the less you live it, the more bitter you become. The less you take advantage of life, the more bitter you become. The more you take advantage of life, bitterness begins to give way to that pleasantness that is who you really are. That doesn't mean nice or gentle. It just means life as it was meant to be. And it's our choice to take that or not to take that. Let's close Ruth 1. Let's enter Ruth 2. And when we do, you're going to meet the guy that I told you at the top. Until you see him, you know we're not done. When you see him, we're almost done. Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabitess. There it is. Might as well just underline that if you've got a hard copy because it's going to pop up over and over and over again because the author is shoving it in someone's face. Ruth the Moabitess. Don't forget, Ruth is a Moabitess. All this stuff that's about to happen is happening to a Moabitess. How do you guys feel about Moabitesses? Well, because here comes a Moabitess. What do you think about this girl? And over and over and over, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So we know things are about to turn. And they turn straight into 2-1 because that's the very next verse. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, his name was Boaz. And enter stage left, the, the hero, the next hero of the story, the redeemer, the, in many respects, the savior character, the one who should probably want nothing to do with those filthy Moabites. Surely, someone with some sanity has arrived on the scene in the book of Ruth that Boaz will want nothing to do with her. Why would a man of great wealth want to waste that wealth on this outsider, this stranger that surely doesn't have a home in Israel? Now, we know where this story's going, but if you're a first-time reader, maybe you don't. Here's what we don't really know about Moaz. We don't know the meaning of his name. I'm quoting Robert Alter here from his great Hebrew commentary. The meaning of his name is not altogether transparent, though it may not be meant to be symbolic. A tradition that goes back to late antiquity associates Boaz with a Hebrew root that signifies the word strength. So that's what most of your commentaries will say. Boaz means strength, although it's actually a derivative of another word. So we're not real positive. There's a bit of a mystique around Boaz, which makes him the Jesus character as well again, which makes him much like the Redeemer. And next week, we're going to have Ruth meeting Boaz in the great moment of the scripture. Next week, we'll also get into uh, Ruth goes out into the field and we're going to pull some stuff from Torah that is vital to understanding this story. 
because there is a way you're supposed to treat people in the fields of Israel. And Ruth is gonna go live this out in real time. And the story that is gonna unfold is meant to not just tell a story, but preach a message about these Moabites. You may not like them, but God had them in mind way back when. And so we're gonna go there with them. I, I wanna pray for you tonight. I wanna pray for all who watch or listen who maybe this message said something to you about your own identity. And if you're struggling with that, struggling with who you are, I can't talk you into it. I think we've made the mistake of, of trying to talk people into identity or talk people into salvation. I think if you, if you don't encounter the love of God by revelation, it's really only going to last to your next mistake, your next sin, your next problem. And you're going to be like, and that's what's happened to a lot of people. And even in grace, they got a book and they heard a preacher and they got all excited. And then life threw them a curveball and they just went, well, that didn't work. And that's because they had information. They didn't have revelation. And information's exciting, but it doesn't change your life. And so a revelation of your identity is what you need. That's what we're going to pray for. However, here's, here's an important part, though. Revelation is often birthed out of information. You hear, and therefore you believe. And so you don't believe because of the words, but you believe because the word points you to the word, capital W. Until you, and so that's what we'll pray. Let's pray that. And if you don't have any issues in your own identity, well, then pray for someone who does, because I can promise you. <laughs> many, many do. And, and honestly, we all do, if we're honest, at one time or the other. Father, I am so thankful for this word tonight that has ministered to me in both prep and then standing in front of your people. And, and, and having to wrestle with the question, what's in a name? I know what's in my personal name here on this earth. I know who it represents, and I know my own background, my own life, my own roots that are in the ground of this tree called Paul White. But I also know that I'm more than what you can see, that I'm, there's a whole coding inside of me that determines the kind of tree I am. And it's that coding that makes the fruit what it is. And so, Father, I want to be in touch with that coding. I don't want to just be who I am in the natural. I want to have access to who I know I am in you. So when it comes out of my mouth, faithlessness or bitterness, I know you're gracious and I know you're merciful and you don't hold me to it, but I don't want to hold me to it. And I pray for anyone who's watching who's been holding themselves to it. They've been holding themselves to bitterness and hurt and pain and anger and unforgiveness. They hold themselves to it because they think it's who they are. And we've given them information. But Father, I pray you give them a revelation, a true revelation of their true identity in spite of themselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.